A River to Cross, Chapter 18. Spring Break, Country Style in the 60s in the South. Quote, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. End quote. Ecclesiastes, Chapter 3, Verse 1. Three boys, a Volkswagen, a boat and trailer, an island in the Mississippi River, and a holiday week. Sounds pretty tame and somewhat natural. Well, the boys were Royce Creasink, Howard Hearing, and me. The oldest was about 14. The trailer was hooked to the Volkswagen without the benefit of a hitch. There was a gallon of wine, and the hunting camp on the island belonged to someone else. Starting to sound a little flaky? Plug in that the boat is a 12-foot John boat with a questionable motor. The river to cross is the Mississippi, and it's at high flood stage. This was going to be one of those trips. Howard's daddy, Mr. Bug Herring, was a member of Diamond Point Hunting Club, which was our destination. It was where we planned to stay while vacationing on Davis Island in the Mississippi River on the Louisiana side, across from Vicksburg, just north of Tallulah, Louisiana. Howard's plan was for us to go up during spring break and stay the week. It was 1966, as I recall. Howard and Royce were 14, and I was closing in on my birthday number 13. Needless to say, none of us had a driver's license or anything that even resembled one. But we were used to that little anomaly. All three of us drove regularly all over our rural corner of the state. Of course, we weren't going to be in our little corner of the state or even in our state, but no reason to let this technicality keep us from adventure. Undaunted, we forged ahead. Howard said the camp would be empty and we would have the whole island to ourselves. Parenthesis. He had no idea just how right that would turn out to be. In parenthesis. Quote. Okay, Howard, sounds good. How do we get there? We asked. He told us his plan was to chain, we didn't have a trailer hitch, a small boat trailer to the rear bumper of the Volkswagen Bug, loaded with a 12-foot John boat with a 10-horsepower Johnson Seahorse outboard motor down in the boat to be put on when we got there. The plan was to cross the Mississippi at Natchez, drive up through the broad, flat plain of the Louisiana Delta to historic Tallulah, Louisiana, where we would head out to the bank of the old river which had to be crossed to get to Diamond Point. Oh, yeah, there was also the small problem of convincing our parents to let us go. I don't know what that was like for those two, but I had to put on an absolute Oscar performance to get my mother to let me go. Daddy was busy, and he pretty much left those kind of decisions up to my mother. She knew better, but she let me go anyway. I don't know if it was the relief of getting me out of her hair for a few days, or more likely it was that I wore her completely down on the subject. I still remember my excitement when she capitulated. I was going on the adventure of a lifetime, and so when we left Howard's house, felt like this was an adventure to rival the boating trip taken in the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. I felt much like I imagined Christopher Columbus must have felt when Queen Isabella said he could go in search of the new world. I was excited. 
We were armed with cigarettes, the main food we took with us, Howard's 30 caliber M1 carbine, a little real food, our clothes and our John boat, and small outboard motor, and we were off for a week. Admittedly, this was a little shorter than Chris's trip, but then he didn't have Howard and Royce with him. I was feeling pretty good about the trip until we got to Vidalia, Louisiana. Howard and Royce were plotting how to buy a big bottle of wine and some beer for the trip. Now, at that time, I didn't care anything for alcohol. In fact, I was dead set against it. When they got a bottle of wine and some beer from Charlie's Minute Stop in Vidalia, I thought we were surely going to die right then or at least go to prison for the rest of our lives. Royce and Howard were in the front seat having the time of their lives, and I was in the back seat worrying enough for all three of us. I should have known then, as I know now, this is the day the Lord has made. I will relax and enjoy it, or at least that Rosebud's version of it. Rosebud is a new friend I met recently while visiting a local nursing home facility who interrupted me and said, this is the day the Lord has made. I will relax and enjoy it, parenthesis, instead of we will rejoice and be glad in it, Psalm 118:24. What wisdom those old eyes held and foretold. Kids have a routine they follow in the spring, but so does the Mississippi River. The kids always do spring break in the spring. The river was doing what it always does in the spring, flood. Spring 1966 didn't vary from the usual pattern. Snow runoff from the north resulted in high flooding in the lower Mississippi River Valley. When the Mississippi is not at flood stage, access to Davis Island is across the still and calm waters of the old river channel. When the Mississippi is at or above flood stage, as it was in the spring of 1966, the main river takes over and flows directly into and through the old river channel. The normally calm old river changes drastically when the Mississippi gets into it. The normal landscape of the bank and the usual landmarks are gone. We faced a vastly different old river, and this made the whole prospect of getting to Diamond Point different and dangerously challenging. Further complicating our efforts, it was dark when we arrived, and we had no flashlight of any kind. When you're a teenager, the very present and real dangers of a flooding Mississippi don't sink in, not even when it's dark and you have no flashlight. In spite of the river going from a cub to a full-grown bear, we were completely undaunted and launched our little John boat and small outboard motor into the floodwaters, no landmarks, no flashlight, and no sense. Boldness notwithstanding, the darkness, the absence of any flashlight, and the lack of landmarks left us searching for a needle in a haystack. Our circumstances were reminiscent of what my old friend, Judge Donald B. Patterson, used to note about a particular legal concept that he observed was akin to a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hat that isn't there. The landmark Howard had in mind had been washed away by spring floods, and even if it had still existed, it would have been underwater, way underwater. Even if it hadn't been gone or been underwater, it still would have been invisible to us because we had nothing to cut the pitch black of night. 
We plunged ahead with no more thought than anything else we had undertaken. That is to say, we moved foolishly. Howard was the only one of us who had ever been to Davis Island. He had not considered how totally different the river would look and act during spring floods. What Howard was used to seeing in the fall just didn't exist in the flooded landscape. The landing Howard knew and was looking for no longer existed, and with no light or clue as to a backup plan, we were destined to spend the night looking for that black hat that wasn't there. Deep into the night, we finally found a spot to stop the boat. We got out of the boat into the flooded woods and literally felt our way through the maze of trees and brush as we waded through the floodwaters to find an opening and dry ground. Once we found the opening, the huge open field in which Diamond Point is located, there still remained a long, dark, cold, wet walk to the camp. We reached the camp cold, wet, tired, and in my case, feverish, having left home with an already sore throat. My fever and all that went with it was about to really jump on me, but at the moment, we were just really glad to be there and ready to continue our adventure. Diamond Point Camp was a large, rambling, wooden and tin structure with bunk areas, a kitchen, and a large dining area with picnic-style tables scattered around. In addition to the main camp building, there was a separate skinning and open-air meat storage building and a lean-to where the camp kept a few old World War II Willis Jeeps with canvas tops. Our heads didn't touch the cots good before it was daylight and we were up and moving. In our self-centered, the world is here to suit us attitude, we never thought whose or how about the Jeeps or anything else for that matter, only what we needed and how to meet those needs. Let the chips fall where they may, we immediately started working on getting one of the Jeeps running to begin our safari. When we got one of the Jeeps cranked, Howard said, let's go and get some meat, meaning kill a deer to keep us fed while we were on the island. Howard was driving, Royce was riding shotgun, and I was in the back seat of the Jeep. Age has privilege, especially in the pecking order of front seats for boys. The field the camp was located in was the largest wide open space I had ever seen. It seemed to me that it was a mile or more across. We were used to deer feeding primarily at night, but on this secluded island with its huge open savanna, the deer were feeding 24 hours a day. We saw many deer feeding that morning in herds all around the large open field. With our jeep cranked, we took off for the nearest group of deer. Howard braked to, to a slow roll, jumped up in a standing position, and made a really amazing shot, which we have never been allowed to forget, on a running deer at a distance of close to 200 yards. So, with the deer down, meat in the box, the world at our feet, and plenty of cigarettes and matches, we were set up for the adventure of all adventures to continue on. What a week we had planned, or so it seemed in our minds. As I look back on it, we were totally without a plan, without much of anything, but that is planning as viewed by a teenager. 
We skinned and cleaned the deer and hung him in the skinning shed. The shed was a screened enclosure that probably worked well in the winter, but it was not a great place to preserve meat in the 70-plus degree weather of springtime in the Louisiana Delta. But spoiled meat wasn't an immediate problem, but with five days ahead of us to live off that meat with no refrigeration, it would become a problem soon enough. The remaining deer carcass was hung with enough meat cut off to feed us a good meal immediately. We cooked up the deer meat, and with our stomachs full, we were now ready to explore. It was still just early afternoon with a lot of day left. It soon became apparent that there were some necessities we were without. In order to be really prepared for the rest of the week, someone was going to have to make a run into town. I also was hoping for something to fight my growing fever. It was decided, meaning Howard said it, that Howard would stay and take care of things at camp and Royce and I would make the trip back to the tree where we left the boat tied back up the Mississippi River into town and back again. This seemed like no big deal now that we knew where we were going and it would be an all in the daylight, right? All was well. Royce and I set out on our supply replenishing trip into Tallulah. We made it back to our boat along the river fine. We made it back up the river to the car with no problems. Our trip into Tallulah was pretty uneventful. But there was one problem. When we got back to the boat for the return trip, it was starting to get dark. We thought of just staying there at the boat landing until daylight, but decided we shouldn't leave Howard on the island alone all night, so off we went. It seemed as if night fell about the time we pulled the crank rope on the Johnson Seahorse and it coughed to life, and so once again we were trying to find our way in the dark. But we thought surely we wouldn't have any problem finding it this time. After all, we'd found it once before. We didn't take into account several things. We had one less set of eyes. We had never been here before, and we still had no flashlight. And most importantly, we didn't realize the impact of the quickly rising river and how it constantly changed the scenery by covering more and more dry ground with backwaters of the mighty Mississippi River. We were in a boat in the Mississippi. We had no light, and we didn't know where we were going or what to do. We were lost. Now, finally, we were scared. We wanted to try to go back to the car, but we weren't sure of that, and we didn't feel like we could leave Howard alone either. We forged ahead, and with our search for the landing, eventually we found a place to land that looked right, and we took it. The place we went ashore was not the place we needed to be. Again, it was cold, dark, and lonely. Royce and I wandered through the swamp for a bit, meaning we waded through the dark waters in the dark night, surrounded by huge old-growth cypress and sweet gums and willow trees and thickets of new-growth willow. We were wading in our street clothes, and there were stump holes you could lose a jeep in. There were places where you couldn't get through at all. We finally gave up and decided to camp in the swamp, but we were completely surrounded by water, and the thought of standing in the water all night was not appealing. We found a huge hollowed-out cypress stump, and we climbed inside of it and built a fire. We are going to die here, Royce proclaimed. We will never get out of here alive, he continued. 
we began speaking of how this is where we were going to die. We talked of how long it would be, if ever, before they found our remains. We thought of how that probably wouldn't present a problem since a bear or an alligator or a wampus cat would likely kill us and eat us before daylight anyway. My fever was full blast by now, and I was one miserable little boy. Scared, too. Sometime way in the night, we heard some gunshots. We thought of what that might be and decided it was someone out to kill us and to try to do it before the critters got to us. But it wasn't either of those. It was Howard. The one thing we hadn't thought about was how he was likely more scared than us because at least there were an us with us, but with him, there was just a him. Howard was alone on the island. He had no way to get back to civilization because we took the boat with us. He was wading through the swamp, firing a shotgun, praying for someone to hear him. I don't know if we were more excited to see him or him us. Oh, and by the way, while we were gone, Howard had gained access to another locker back at the camp, gotten a shotgun, plenty of shells, and a flashlight. We were back in business. He knew the way out of the swamp and back to the camp. We made it back in one piece. We were safely home at Diamond Point Camp. We had a new problem. The butane tank had run out. With no electricity on the island, the butane was the only source for lights and cooking except for wood. Never fear, Howard had a plan for the lights and to some extent, for my sake, some heat. We could, according to him, simply pour gasoline into an empty pint bean can, light the top of it, and let it sit and burn and thus function as our light. It was still cool at night, even though hot in the daytime, especially when you were feverish. Believe it or not, as crazy as it sounded, the gasoline light plan seemed to be working okay. I was even trying to forget about the fever and the pain that wouldn't let me forget every time I swallowed. So we were enjoying the new lights, Howard was cooking on the wood stove, and Royce and I were hanging out at one of the tables. He was on one side, I was on the other, and the light was on the table between us. Royce found some Diamond Point Hunting Club, quote, no trespassing, end quote, signs made of stiff cardboard and discovered that these could be sailed across the room like little flying saucers. They were actually like frisbees, but this was before the frisbee had been invented, or if invented, it hadn't found its way into our part of the world that I recall. Royce would sail the posters through the flames. His aim was generally pretty good, and I was there on the other side to catch them. It worked great until one of the posters hit the can and caused it to tip over on me. As the gasoline poured out, it caught up and all landed on me, and I was suddenly the human torch. What is the recommended posture for someone on fire? Run like hell? No, but that is what I did. There was a fire extinguisher, and by the time we got the fire out, the whole kitchen was on fire. I was out, but the kitchen was not. While they eventually got the fire out, it wasn't before there was more than a little damage to the kitchen and dining room. I would say that I must have been blessed of the Lord for reasons far beyond my entitlement, which was none. I only had blisters and a haircut 
As I recall, it was the next day that we decided it might be time for us to get out of Dodge because the scene at the deer camp was not pretty. We thought if someone did happen to come up to the camp, we would be in way more trouble than we had created on our own, and that was considerable. They would probably feed us to the alligators and the wampus cats, and rightfully so. We hightailed it back to the boat, back to the landing, back to the Volkswagen, back on the boat trailer, and headed back home to Mississippi. I think I'm leaving a few days out because I remember there was one day when Howard raided a member's locker who happened to be a medical doctor and recovered syringes and medicine that Howard reported was just what the doctor ordered for tonsillitis and fever. I remember spending most of that day running to stay away from Dr. Kildare, who wanted to heal me. With all that said, it was a high adventure that yielded a lifetime of stories. Howard's story is always about the shot that he still thinks was heard around the world when he killed the running deer at about 200 yards. I think the distance has gotten much further, though, through the years. With the open sights on his M1 carbine, it was quite a shot. I almost didn't live through it, but I wouldn't take anything for the trip. I have never been back to Diamond Point, and I certainly didn't expect to be invited back, but it is a place that lives on in my memory quite vividly and with great fondness in spite of and maybe because of the calamities we survived there. I have found it to be mostly fun to remember many of these events. The spring break trip to Diamond Point certainly was a fun time, but it has caused me to give considerable time and thought to the mental process in all of this. How does a person wind up in such a mess and always be the one to take it on the chin in these activities? I don't have a complete answer, but I do have thoughts formulating. When I combine these events with the tragedies that occurred later in my life, I'm led to the inescapable conclusion that there is more at work here than just chance. The end result is that when I am pursuing life my way, I must accept responsibility for the tragedies that follow those choices. God has a will and a way. When I depart from it, I can always expect to suffer the harvest of my own crop of pain. Floods and rivers are there for a purpose, and the best way to approach a flooding river is to carefully watch it from a distance. Life has its floods also. Trying to play with floods of a lifetime will almost always bring about disastrous results.